Hello, welcome to the Office Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Nistad, and I'm currently an undergraduate student studying psychology at Colorado State University, located in Fort Collins, Colorado. In this podcast, I'm going to be talking to professors about interesting topics they teach in their classes, research, and have extensive knowledge in. My goal is to discuss topics that might interest you and that you might have never really had exposure to, with the hopes that these conversations will inspire you to explore these subjects further, or at the very least, entertain you. I also hope this podcast will serve to inspire other students to engage with their teachers, instructors, and professors outside of the lecture hall and make the most of the invaluable resource that these faculty truly are. The first episode of the podcast features a conversation between myself and Dr. Nicole Vieira, an honors professor at CSU that teaches classes that address wildlife and sustainability and their relationship to cultures around the world. She has also taught classes on fish, wildlife, and conservation biology, to name a few. In this conversation, we'll explore the issues of intersection of culture and wildlife, trying to see the world in an animal's perspective, and wolf reintroduction in Colorado. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right. Um, so, uh, Dr. Nicole Vieira is sitting here with me. Um, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for meeting with me. This is the first ever office hours podcast. I'm really excited. Um, Great idea, Zach. Yeah. Especially thank with you. us all being online. Like this is kind of fun since we can't really have office hours of people in the classroom. This is a great idea. Exactly. And while, while I have the zoom membership, I might as well put it to you. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but to start us off, I just wanted to ask you, um, what department you teach in at CSU? Yeah. So actually that's, a. Uh, a complicated question. I, I'm actually housed in the honors program at CSU, and I'm a faculty there uh, where I teach honors seminars, and I've done other things for honors as well as needed. But I'm also sort of dually um, affiliated with and work out of the Warner College of Natural Resources. So I I work out of the ecosystem science and sustainability department, um, doing very different things. I don't teach there. You know, you and I met through honors, um, but I also help advise over there, especially our international students. So, yeah, I kind of work in both areas, which is great. Uh, they kind of complement each other. Awesome. So now uh, my next topic that I wanted to talk with you about, uh, just so everyone who knows who's listening to this, I was a student in your class where we talked about the, uh, the intersection of biodiversity and wildlife with culture. And the, one of the main themes in this class, it was a seminar class where we'd have discussions about readings that related to these topics. And one of the main themes was where is the line between preserving culture and also preserving wildlife? Because a lot of cultures use wildlife and um, have relationships with biodiversity that might not be um, the most effective at preserving and conserving that wildlife. But who's to say where we draw the line for preserving culture or like preferring culture over wildlife. Did I explain that okay? Or? Yeah, well, you were, so you were my student, so I'm going to flip the question. Yeah. When you, came, when you came into my class, which is, um, it's on, you know, wildlife conflict and how wildlife conservation and then culture sort of butts heads or sometimes works together. Yeah. When you first came into my class, how did you feel about whaling? Uh, I would say that there was definitely an anti-whaling perspective that I held, but I would also preface that I didn't have any any knowledge about it. 
Right. It was just kind of a gut, a gut feeling like, exactly. you know, well, why would people want to kill whales? Yeah. How did you feel after we had that class debate where we really picked through, um, you know, the macaw, uh, macaw people in the Pacific Northwest and their desire to, you know, hunt one or two whales whenever it was possible when the animals weren't um, endangered. Did, did that change your perspective at all? Yeah, that was a complete u-turn for me not that i would say i have a definitive answer now but it was definitely an eye-opener as to questions like it was almost like taking a philosophy class that was about culture and wildlife in this intersection and there's like these questions that we have to think about but there are no definitive answers like no one will ever be able to prove what the right answer is in this situation but you should still think about it for the value of it but just so everyone knows, uh, we the the situation we're referring to is for the maca whaling situation is there's this culture that has been practicing um, uh, like utilizing whales and like all of the all of the meat on whales hunting whales um, for thousands of years, right? And oh yeah, I mean for as long as they have record. Yeah, yeah. Basically, once there was uh, once attention was brought to the issue that there was a significantly lower number of whales now in the ocean. People started kind of halting the whaling practices and they stopped. But once the population rebounded and they started to uh, practice whaling again, there was a lot of uh, outrage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, but at that point, you know, whale, whaling, um, protecting or saving the whales was one of the very first really, really strong science-based, um, animal advocacy movements. So they got all those cultures that were, were eating whales and using them and, you know, harvesting them got hit pretty hard. You know, they, the, the advocacy groups found new power by contracting scientists to talk about different things not about population ecology and how many there are but more about sentience and how intelligent these animals are and really looking at things at a different scale and so what you had was like science versus science and you had these indigenous communities kind of stuck in the middle and you know the fingers being pointed at them like how can you possibly eat this it's like eating another human you know this this whale is so smart and loves its babies and all this stuff and um they were looking at it from yeah we we find the whale, as, the whale is sacred. We love the whale. We love the whale more than you. It's part of our community. It's part of our family. It's, it's, but they, but they sacrifice themselves a couple, every couple of years to make sure that we can eat, um, and, and be able to, you know, celebrate, um, the, the, the bounty that they give us. So it was just two perspectives that just didn't align at all. Yeah. And I think there's also this issue of um, people that were in, in this particular situation that were against the maca whaling um, or the macaw whaling. It was that they weren't they weren't really seeing the whaling as a traditional act or maybe they saw it as a traditional act, but they weren't really like putting themselves in the shoes of this culture and really understanding like what the practice meant to them. Because we talked about how it was uh, pretty much ingrained in so many different aspects of their culture from feeding to teaching um, spirituality. Um, yeah. So it's just... I can bring your question it, yeah. to something that maybe is more like that everyone can relate to. So like yeah. you have an endangered species in the United States. Um, 
if it gets listed as an endangered species, then the feds, the federal system, um, you know, Fish and Wildlife Service, Service, et cetera, has to kind of swoop in and try to save that animal and exert their rights under the Endangered Species Act, you know, that could mean preserving habitat within someone's private land or telling them, you know, you can't graze your or you can't uh, put an oil well there or whatever. Um, so the problem with that is very much kind of like the whaling system. The, the, when the federal government comes in and tries to work at a local scale to save an animal, they don't know the people and the culture. So if it's a rural culture, they just don't have those relationships and connections. So it's better to actually be managed by the state. You know, if the state has a robust um, fish and wildlife unit, you know, like Colorado Parks and Wildlife, because our our people on the ground in Colorado Parks and Wildlife know, personally know, these landowners and these ranchers. And they can work with them and with their culture and with their traditions and with their needs, their farming needs, their grazing needs, to actually get a win-win. And so, you know, what happens a lot of times is we try to override or dismiss people's culture and see it as a hindrance rather than as something that could actually help us in the long run conserve the animals. And I know we're going to be talking about wolves later. Yeah. But I can I can kind of, you know, prelude or whatever, like yeah. what we're going to talk about. Yeah. When when rural people who, you know, have to make a land, uh, living off their land rather, get things like big predators foisted upon them by outside forces you know it's a lot different it's a lot harder to tolerate than if it's you know your fish and game guy coming and having coffee and saying hey we really want to try to bring these back let's look at how many cattle you have let's look about can we get some dogs on the ground to kind of you know protect your cattle it's a relationship and it's one that's be that's steeped in an understanding of culture and so you get a lot more support um, some of the best conservation projects are because landowners and, and ranchers and whatnot are, are willing and able, you know, to try to help. So I think, you know, we have this sort of imperialistic issue with wildlife conservation where when we dismiss someone's culture because it's different than ours, um, we tend to just try to find, use science to override their needs and their desires. And their desires may be weird to us, you know, yeah. but to them, it may be something that's been going on for centuries or millennia. Yeah. In the case of traditional Chinese medicine, millennia. Yeah. And it also in, in that practice, I mean, the way that they, it wasn't their practice that is the reason these whales were becoming extinct in the first place. Uh, it was, it was definitely large corporations and other practices, um, probably, I guess you could say of Western culture sort of, um, rather than like these traditional culture, cultural practices that were driving these populations down. Yeah, good memory. I mean, yeah. that was one of the problems. I mean, everyone wants to point fingers at, you know, indigenous communities that want to use a, a few animals. But in the case of whaling, it was commercial whaling that knocked them out. And you know, the United States was doing commercial whaling. Um, you know, that kind of mass scale destruction, you know, through commercial fishing really was the beginning of the end for some of these whales. It wasn't the indigenous communities ever. Yeah. And I, I guess sort of to branch off of that is like, so I, I wanted to talk to you about this paper or this essay that we read in your class called is a hunting ethical. Um, 
And it's just this really interesting paper. Uh, her name, the author's name is Anne Ascazi. And it's, a, it's basically just an argument for moral hunting. Um, not really an argument, but it sort of clarifies what the, the question is when someone is considering whether or not hunting is ethical. And she brings up this really interesting point that a lot of times people will say that hunting is necessary to control populations or is a very effective tool at least to control populations of uh, game animals and animals and ecosystems but she's saying that that doesn't really answer the question of whether or not hunting is ethical um, so she just sort of brings up this this these arguments where hunting is really useful for population control and all these other things but this is sort of the hunter's way of dodging or not dodging but answering the wrong question because she she is like pro hunting i guess you would say in the article yeah when i you know she that i love that paper uh, most of my students leave remembering that one and the whaling paper probably the most yeah it's first of all it's cool that it's a female hunter i mean there's a there's a growing number of female hunters in the united states um which we should be thankful for because their hunting dollars are really what's going um for example to state of colorado to manage our wildlife yeah I mean, that's, that's where a lot of money comes from. And so um, you got to think one hunter will get out on the landscape and for elk in Colorado, maybe once in five years, you're lucky enough to actually, you know, bring an animal home uh, to eat. So all every other year, you know, you're putting money out there into the landscape for other good things. But so she's a female hunter and she starts off that article actually talking about how she's like nursed, you know, little fawns and deer and stuff back to health. So she actually has this sort of animal welfare ethic, you know, that she cares about individual animals and she like tries to make them survive. And then she turns around and says, yeah, but you know, next hunting season, I'm probably going to end up killing you. Yeah. Um, and I think she really shows, you know, the, the personal ethic and and sometimes the conflict you know for hunters from if you look if they look at it from a population point of view they're like okay you know i'm i'm actually helping this population to stay healthy at the right capacity you know for the environment um so I'm, I'm, I'm a management tool, you know, and I get to bring some meat home most of the time or some of the time. At the same time, there's a lot of hunters I know who still don't like that moment of the of the kill. You know, there, there's a huge percentage of hunters that really have no interest in posing with their animals. You know, they just kind of go and thank it for what it's, it's given them and, and take yeah. them home and feed their family. It's a complex ethic with hunting. Yeah. And yeah. From a science point of view, you can look at it and say, you know, most of the time, as long as it's not poaching, which is illegal hunting, if it's legal hunting, it's probably being set up to help keep populations balanced, but it still can be a conflict internally, you know, for the hunter I, that, you know, I'm a hunter. I mean, I don't hunt big game, but I've hunt birds. And I remember shooting my very first animal ever uh, was a duck. And it was a great shot. So I was like, super excited that I landed a killing blow and, and I was self and then burst into tears <laughs> when I actually had the dog bring me the back. And I thought, Oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. It's, it's really complex. And then I enjoyed eating it, you know, <laughs> due to yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think again, there, there's like this, this similar theme as with the Macaw people where, uh, people that are anti this tradition sort of think of it in a way that's, uh, 
like, I mean, I, I don't want to say not accurate, but they think of it in that sort of a distorted way. Like, because a lot of people that maybe don't know anyone who hunts, like uh, the way that you were talking about where you're going out and you're actually, you know, on this sort of like experience trying to find an animal hunting it down and like tracking it things like that whereas a lot of people think about hunting as like these sort of immoral practices where you're kind of just sitting in a tree and you have like you're sitting in like a field of tons of these animals where it's not really a difficult like thing to do they're just sort of doing it um i forget what she calls the those sort of hunting practices but in her paper she's advocating to get those aspects of hunting out of the picture so it doesn't that, i call that bubba hunting yeah yeah exactly <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it. women who do that too but yeah it's kind of your you know sit in a tree stand with a bunch of beer and you know bait all these animals in and you know you're not quite uh the best shot after you know six Budweiser's and yeah. name the first animal and then finally, you know, shoot one and take it home. Yeah, and you and that's wonder. so rare, but it, it does happen and when it happens, oh my goodness, it just the animal rights and advocate you know, advocates and stuff folks just blow up. Yeah. Um and that, like that goes viral yeah exactly that's what's going viral and like it's easy to think like where's the like higher pleasure like morally and ethically in that like whereas w when someone's really hunting i'll call it like really hunting when someone is actually like engaging in the more traditional practice of it it's like sounds like a really fulfilling experience and like one where they're sort of um really respecting nature and the ecosystem because they have to be so involved with it and have such a good understanding of it a lot of times they're the ones who want to protect it the most um right. which is another good sort of argument in the sense that it connects people more with with nature it's fun that you brought this around to an ethical point of view because we don't really talk about this in the class we don't connect all these dots always in the class that that you took with me but i teach multiple classes at csu and one of them is environmental ethics and and that really plays into your your initial question that we started with you know how do we decide when we put the animal or the culture first and one of the fundamental things we need to understand is what is that culture's ethic is it an animal welfare ethic or the opposite of an animal welfare ethic would be like a taboo ethic, right? Yeah. Like certain animals are evil or you can't touch them or if they look at you wrong, like the eye, eye you know, you got to kill it. So, you know, there's, there's those, that level of ethic, but there's also an ethic about biodiversity and there's an ethic about, you know, whole earth, mother earth, like we can take animals. She's giving us her abundance, but we need to make sure we, preserve their, the generative process of the earth, that we can always be creating more, creating more species, creating more individuals. Cultures have different ethic. And they think what they're doing is fits you know, perfectly well within that ethic and our ethic doesn't align with it. So the very first thing we need to do is get within that culture and understand the ethic. Because within each ethical layer, there's some conservation um, movement that you can you can do, you know, maybe, maybe that here's the worst case scenario. You have a culture that really you know loves to poach, um, but they have this earth ethic where they want like mother earth to be able to keep generating. So in that case, you know, what you do is you set up no poaching zones where that they that become sacred. Like these areas for earth to continue to, to bless us with these animals, these are, these areas have to be poaching free. You know, yeah. If you sort of poach to feed your family, 
these are sacred zones and everyone agrees to it and, and no one goes in there. That'll always then produce more elephants, more zebras, more yeah. lions, more everything. Yeah. It's just, I guess that's a really interesting like solution to like, um, I forget what it's called. Uh, is that the prisoners dilemma or like the common, like when people are all using the common resource and like for the sake of themselves, but it yeah. kind of screws um, everyone else. I'm forgetting the name of this dilemma. Well, it's uh, one of them is um, one of the, one of the problems is what's called the myth of superabundance, which means, and actually, do you remember the paper we read in, on the Baha'u people who were um, using blast fishing? They were blowing oh, yeah. coral reefs. See? Yeah, yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. That, that's like a, a myth of superabundance says that, oh, there'll always be enough animals for us. Yeah. You know? But unfortunately, some smaller scale indigenous cultures don't realize the sort of rape and pillage that's happening to those same animals outside of their you know more um simplistic yeah fishing or hunting methods like yeah because of their isolation right they, yeah, yeah it's just it's just because they aren't interacting with like commercial fishermen you know, have any idea how many fish a commercial fish fishing boat can take yeah um yeah so they just assume that the fish are always going to be there. And as we know, I mean, you take away the coral reefs, that's the that's the generative process in the ocean. That's where a lot of biodiversity comes from. Yeah. And so that that in particular is a, a difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's also like just interesting uh, to think about like how, I guess, how we can make sure that we're protecting our our biodiversity so we can reap the benefits of it whether that be um the the benefits of like hunting if you're a traditional hunter and the spirituality of the macaw people if they're if they're whaling in their practices but there's also these other interesting benefits that i didn't know about until i took your class which was um, which is really relevant right now, which is the emergence of diseases and how having biodiversity can prevent that. Would you sort of explain like how that works? Cause that's something I've always been confused about, like how a population can keep it from a disease from spreading into the human population. Right. Well, you know, a lot of these sort of parasites or viruses or, um, gosh, there's all sorts of weird stuff you know, it's, it's, it's evolved to be moving within the animal communities, you know, in that area, right? So bat to monkey, you know, some, for example, um, some of the primates that are in contact with bats that have diseases in, in Africa won't necessarily die, you know, from that disease because they've co-evolved with it. Um, but somehow, some way, you know, parasites and viruses and bacteria and stuff, always, and fungi, they all, they always seem to find a host somewhere. And when you start losing biodiversity and that network of that cycle, you know, th then you get this virus and these, these kind of bad actors populate into novel animals. And, and that ends up being us. So the biodiversity is like a buffer, you know, just keep the disease in the forest where it started and, and let it cycle through those things. But the minute we start physically encroaching into that and become part of that biodiversity ring and then knock out all those potential agents for the parasite for example or, or yeah. virus to work in then we're the next target you know yeah. it's going to be like us and our agricultural animals yeah um so that's that's what's kind of a weird concept but um it's partly because we're moving into those habitats and we're we're, we're forging in there and, and sort of getting exposed as as if we're like another animal um 
but we're not we don't have the immunity yeah and like you said as like the buffers sort of these other uh wildlife as they their populations decline ours is growing rapidly so there's more chances for us to get these viruses or these bad actors and less buffer to protect us i guess so that makes a lot of sense right and the thing is like you know we know this was, you know, pandemics are something I've taught in all my classes for years. And, you know, here we are <laughs> um, for a year now, you know, yeah. dealing with one. It was totally expected. It just, you know, that it's uh, a whole other podcast on the response to yeah. the pandemic was not, <laughs> not what everyone <laughs> expected. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, everyone knew this was going to happen at some point. The more you have biodiversity and the more well, you have those bats interacting with like native animals uh, in China for this particular pandemic, yeah. um, whether that be civets or whatever, um, the more you have them interacting, those animals that are in the world will have a chance to evolve defenses you know, that we can eventually learn from. So if we remove these animals that co-evolve with some of these, you know, coronaviruses and stuff like that, that can somehow tolerate them, you know, without dying, we lose that opportunity to yeah. learn some technology from those animals. Yeah. We're not going to do experiments with human beings, you know, oh, let's just give everyone coronavirus and see if they die. Yeah. You, know, you can do that with animals, sort of ethically, at least more ethically, but, you know, we really risk a lot if... Yeah. We don't have those animals that were co-evolved with some of these diseases still on the landscape so we can watch they deal with it and and what can we what technology can we build from this to make sure we're protected yeah um so yeah it's 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 important uh, to have i mean just even that what we can learn like from from primates yeah that's a really stuff that's a really interesting thing to bring up like about learning and like using their their methods of how they're surviving these things and using science to figure out how we can maybe implement something like that for ourselves because a lot of people think of losing like forests to deforestation as a huge risk in terms of medicine uh there's so much medicine people are estimating there's like lots of medicine that we haven't found in rainforests and things like that through plants that we might never have the opportunity to um unless deforestation stops and we can regenerate forests and let these species grow back which is another reason why we don't want to butt heads over indigenous cultures and wildlife. Yeah. Those indigenous, that indigenous knowledge, they're the ones that know the value of all those plants. They've been working with those plants for thousands of years, like in, in South America and in Australia. Um, Dr. Jean Decker coming and talking about how they, they knew each plant and, and what they could be used for, you know, with the indigenous uh, aboriginals in Australia. We lose a lot of knowledge, you know. Yeah. kind of trying to overwrite cultures over one animal when they have so much else that they can teach us about the rest of their environment. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And it's not in the way that we think of it, at least in Western culture, whereas you need science and the scientific method, which is great to uh, establish like what medicines work and whatnot, where, but these other cultures, even though they might not have the scientific papers on these, these medicines, they still have this crazy body of knowledge. Um, yeah. 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 Um, I learned so, something in my class. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, another <laughs> in a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, another, well, just a lot of it stuck with me, um, which is a theme with a lot of uh, classes I've taken at CSU. And one of the other things that really stuck with me out of your class sort of has to do with wildlife, it, but is a lot more of a philosophical idea, which I found a lot in your class, even though it is studying like wildlife and culture. Um, this article or paper we read um, called What Is It Like to Be a Bat by Thomas Nagel has stuck with me very strongly. Um, and in this paper, I'll try and explain it really quickly and you can help me um, explain it. But basically the author is talking about how we as humans um, will never really be able to understand what it's like to be a bat just because we have completely different biological makeups. We'll never be able to understand like what it's like to see sonar or things that bats have in terms of perception is so different because of their sensory, um, their sensory abilities basically. And like thinking about that, how we'll never know what it's like to be a bat. How can we know what is affecting animals? How can we even understand each other as humans if we can't be in their own body, which is just a wild concept to think about. That was a hard paper to read. And it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it's a famous uh, philosophy paper uh, written in 1974 and you know still relevant today which which t honestly tells us we have a lot more to learn in a neuroscience point of view um but yeah that paper it, it's cool it uses the bat as an example of an animal you know, he picks one that's quite different than us but it could have been a dolphin or a whale you know who uses echolocation or, um, uh, I don't know, a fish that burps underwater and sends out like sounds to other fish. Like there's all sorts of weird stuff, you know, in, in wildlife. But, you know, his point, one of his points is that we just don't know what consciousness is. You know, the only way we can define consciousness is, is by the consciousness that we experience as human beings. Um, and even that is constricted by language. So it's, you know, how do we put into words, you know, what, what consciousness is? And, and for some reason, whenever I talk about the Nagel paper in my classes, it, it always reminds me of like spiritual elements, in particular of Christianity, and of how like, even in, in books like the Bible, you know, people are trying to ex describe God, but they just can't. They, they can't give any a concrete anything. It's this beyond language. I mean, Jesus speaks in parables, right? Yeah. It's it's just like that. It's like, we don't know what consciousness is. And we're so limited, even within our words and our ability to communicate what we experience as individuals. So, you know, I can kind of tell you what I experience and you can imagine what it'd be like to be me. Um, and we're two human beings. Our brains mostly work the same way. Yeah. But um, that's about, you know, imagination is about as far as we can go. And yep. if you look at science, you know, another kind of way of knowing um, Nagel talks about how science really likes to take a reductionist point of view. Yeah. I mean, let's pick apart the little bits and try to figure out how these neurons work. So if I present you with an ice cream cone, you know, what lights up in the brain? Yeah. But, but consciousness really mind, you know, in the Buddhist philosophy is a, it's just, it's an emergent property of the yeah. brain that we, we can't understand. So I think ultimately that paper for me, uh, gosh, you know, I just, I love reading it every, every semester I read it. And I just think, wow, you know, there's so little that we know, there's so much more to be discovered. Yeah. Um, and there's, to me, again, there's like a spiritual element to it. It's like, not everything is explainable, you know, but it's just something that we can really appreciate. Yeah. On Earth, you know, the 
crazy diversity of, of different ways that animals live and learn and experience their lives. And we can't really get into the mind of a dolphin or a whale. Yeah. No, not at all. And like, we like sort of, I mean, I, I at least know that like there are scientists that really believe that dolphins are like one of the most intelligent, emotionally intelligent um, species other than humans. And like, they're sort of, they're trying to figure that out. And like, they think they have some sort of language, but not like a language, like we know it. It's like completely a different thing. So even just trying to put these things together is like, it's, it's definitely valuable in itself trying to understand that, like the getting closer and closer. But the reality is like, we do not have the technology or the tools to answer these things. And like, we're, we're just sort of guessing like how animals feel. I remember we talked in one of our classes, like, how do you know that your dog is actually enjoying it when you're petting it? Like we did, we're pretty sure they do like, cause they come back and they show us affection, but how do you really know what it's conscious experience is in that moment? Yeah, you don't. And I mean, some dogs may, you know, just be maybe trained to like lay down and look relaxed. But if they have like eczema or something that you could be torturing them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Adding them, you're like, Oh, ouch, don't touch my skin. I actually thought of the Nagel paper, and our class discussion since and um, I guess this was during COVID when those orca whales were attacking all, maybe they still are attacking all those boats. It was that off the coast of Spain, I think. I didn't hear about this. Yeah. In the news, there's this like kind of a rogue pod of orcas that have been attacking people's yachts and boats and stuff. Yeah, and I thought, oh boy, here we go. You know, they're going to know they're conscious that they're conscious beings, and they're like, you know, determining that I, we don't want these things here anymore, and they're like ganging up on us. And yeah, we'd be in real trouble if whales finally developed some kind of like, you know, we don't like humans that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It just to see, it was very intentional what they were doing, and. You know, all we can do is imagine why they're doing that. And that literally the articles on on these orca attacks on these boats, you know, they would just batter the things, you know, and for hours. All we can do is sort of A, try to empathize or just imagine, you know, what's going through their head. Is one of them injured and they're just, you know, angry and frustrated or are they young and have like a bunch of hormones that are going crazy? Or yeah. really like, you know, you're kind of in our way. Like we don't, we don't. We see you as a threat. We don't want you here. We just, we have no way of knowing. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And like, there's something I learned in a philosophy class that I took was philosophy. Everything is at one point philosophy, like until you have the tools to figure it out, like science and math at one point were like philosophical concepts or like psychology is now its own branch of study, like based on science. So as we sort of evolve and like innovate as humans and we like grow our body of knowledge maybe someday we'll have the technology or something that will give us more insight but at this point in time we uh, we're not close to it but yeah i mean uh, you know as an ex-engineer here i can say that even physics is a philosophy still yeah there's so much we're trying to learn universe works and there's just we know so little and again from my class you know we're constrained by things like like language yeah um, or or we're, we're biased by things like our own memories or our own experiences sort of filter there's all these filters you know our brain filters things all the time we're not taking in like the full truth of the capital t all the time because we just can't handle it so we have yeah. all these filters that information goes to our senses and our memories and our emotions and all this stuff and reduces it down to something that we can you know chew on so you know in our class we talked about different um religious philosophies you know and and one of the ways that um 
you know, one of the ways to remove some of those filters is obviously, you know, from an Eastern religious point of view is, is removing ego. You know what I mean? Because an ego is a protective layer, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's always trying to affirm self-identity and, you know, rightness and stuff like that. And, um, you know, meditation and things like that, or prayer, if you're, if you're, you know, more Christian, Judaic, whatever, yeah. um, can help you remove some of those layers. And they've actually shown that in the brain. Um, they've, they've actually mapped people who are like deep meditators or deep, um, like nuns, you know, yeah. and hours and hours praying and, you know, whole different areas of their brain. They call it like the God, I don't know, like, what did they call it? Like the God part or something. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your whole brain, you know, shifts, um, and how it like receives information. So, I mean, there's just, there's so much to learn about humans. Yeah. Like, we should just assume that animals have some sense of some basic things like fear, um, maybe even sadness, pain, certainly, you know, pleasure. I yeah. Mean, we gotta, we have to just assume that those things are part of their consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And who knows what else lies in between there. Like I think of it, I guess in my sense, like when I think about vision being like what we see in color is like such a short part of the spectrum of light. Whereas like other animals can see like different places on this spectrum, like maybe consciousness is something like that, where we're all sort of seeing things on different spectrums, who knows, but uh, maybe our brain, maybe we just can't handle it. Maybe we couldn't handle being a bat, you know, yeah, yeah. too threatening. You know, we always have that part of our brain. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm, I'm a wildlife person, but you know, we have that part of the brain that's protective. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes too much information is just overload. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so my, the last topic that I wanted to talk to you about is something that I personally don't have a lot of understanding with. Um, because I'm from Illinois, I sort of like started hearing about wolves when I came to Colorado. And especially in your class, we talked about them a little bit. Um, but uh, this year, there was something on the ballot to vote whether or not people wanted wolves to be reintroduced in Colorado. And it was actually really interesting. The first search I did in a academics database came up with an article written by CSU researchers that was uh, looking at what media um, was saying about the wolf reintroduction and what like what people were concerned about and in this article they said that the major concerns that they found among the public were safety of pets livestock safety and then the loss of hunting opportunities so that's like about all that i really understand as what the public is worried about so i just kind of want to know more about the situation yeah so i mean before i say what i'm about to say about wolves you know i i will preface that by saying, you know, wolves are what kind of got me into ecology. I mean, I just loved wolves. I, you know, I do artwork with um, wolves. I have wolves. If we were doing like a, not a podcast, but actually like a video, I could take you on a tour of my house. There's wolf stuff everywhere. Um, I've always loved wolves, especially, you know, through artistic medias. Um, it's just a pastime. And so it kind of inspired me to get into ecology in the first place. And so, you know, that was many years ago. And, and now I find myself you know, decades later, you know, looking at this ballot initiative and saying, hmm, I'm not sure this is a great idea. So let me explain that. So yeah. first of all, I mean, first of all, it's cool on the one hand, yeah. very cool that, that people, that we have a voice, you know, through ballot and through our representatives. And I try to teach that to my 
you know, use your voice, use your voice, like call your representative, sign up for a ballot initiative, make one yourself, like, you know, be involved. Don't, don't um, sit back and let government just kind of, you know, cruise on without representing your interests. Yeah. It's really neat that the, that there was a ballot initiative. Um, maybe not, not so great that it actually passed because it's, it's the first time an endangered animal has been sort of force reintroduced through a ballot initiative, through public will and public desire, but without the understanding of the scientific ramifications. And then with maybe without, uh, maybe lacking some empathy, you know, on the social ramifications for the, the landowners that actually have to put up with these things. Yeah. So, so I was actually, I'll, you know, I'll say it on the record here. I was against ballot initiative, despite my great passion for wolves. Yeah. Um, and I can kind of give you a couple of different reasons why. One, wolves have been finding their way back to Colorado um, over the last decade on their own. So since I've been here in 1994 or five, somewhere around there, when I first came to CSU for grad school, since that time, there's been a few wolves that have wandered down um, from the Yellowstone area. And one of them, for example, got hit on I-70. Oh my um, gosh. So we, so we knew they were there, right? They, yeah. they, they slowly, you know, dispersed and tried to trickle down. And then we had this black one um, that's been around for a while, kind of up um, in North Park, kind of Walden, you know, kind of that area. I think that's yeah. right. And, and everyone's just thought that was, you know, cool. You know, there it is. And, and the landowners have been, no one's gone out and shot it or anything. You know, everyone's just been very tolerant of this kind of neat, unique lone wolf. <laughs> Everyone loves the lone wolf. Yeah. Um, so we've had that one. And then more recently, you know, there's been a documented pack. I mean, there's, there's like six, and there were six animals eating on an elk carcass. And then, you know, there's other people who have submitted pictures with, of what they think is wolf pups. Yeah. So we, over time, you know, as wolves became more robust in Wyoming and in Utah, um, you know, in states around us, they've slowly made their way back naturally. So we, we have wolves and we're going to have more whether we dump a bunch more on the ground or not. Yeah. Um, and the way they've come back has been slow, given landowners the time to adjust. It's not six packs at once. It's one. Let's see what it does. Does it go after people's cattle and sheep? So far, so good. You know, we are impatient as a species. Humans yeah. are impatient. People want to see wolves in their lifetime because they love them. Yeah. And wolves will be back here. But if we let it happen naturally, it would happen maybe on a time frame that people you know, weren't as happy with, they want to see them and know that they're in all of the areas where they're hiking. Yeah. So one, one thing is they're already coming back. And so now we're going to try to put new wolves that are a little bit more naive to co the Colorado landscape, you know, on top of wolf packs that are forming on their own. Yeah. Just so, sort of plopping them in. Yeah. And they, and the ones that made it here and are successful here are successful because they've been able to adapt to this new environment. There's more people, there's less big open spaces here. You know, there's agriculture, there's more towns. Like we have more kind of highly populated towns than like Wyoming or Utah. Yeah. But these particular wolves that have made it back have done a really good job of managing themselves. Now we're going to take naive wolves from somewhere else and dump them on the landscape. Um, you know, so that's a scientific issue or an ecological potential problem. Yeah. And of course, coming all the way full circle back to your original question about cultural conflict. Um, the... 
the majority of voters, I think, who, who voted this yes on this ballot initiative are urban people on the front range. You know, we want to be in a state where we have wolves. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people who wants to be in a state that has wolves. Yeah. I'm satisfied with the, the natural ones that have recolonized for now. Yeah. But we're, we're placing these wolves in areas of, of high, you know, agriculture. Um, and I think it's going to create conflict and a lot of angst and it's going to split our state, you know, West versus yeah. East and yeah. cause a lot of issues when it didn't, we didn't need to do that. Yeah. That's a really good perspective because that is so true in my experience in the sense that like, yeah, having wolves in Colorado would be like a really attractive thing. Like when people yeah. say that, that's like a really cool thing. Um, but I did not know that there were wolves coming here naturally on their own. So that's like something I feel like would be really important to know as someone who's voting for these types of things or like just for general citizens of Colorado to know, you know. See, and the thing is like like Colorado Parks and Wildlife has a really cool page that, that has all the information on wolves, like which ones have come and when and what they saw them doing and pictures of them that, you know, ranchers have submitted pictures to Parks and Wildlife and say, hey, they were eating an elk carcass on my land. We have, we actually have a website, but unlike Missouri and a few other states, um, we don't have like our own like news station or show. Like some of the fish and game agencies in other states are really, really strong with PR and they have like a, you know, week of wildlife, like Sunday morning special where they yeah. highlight different biologists and game wardens and like highlight the, the yeah. animals of the state. We don't have something like that. We've, we've been slowly upping our game, Yeah, um, but it mostly it's web-based. And so unless someone is directed to that website, uh, most people would not know that we have some fabulous you know information for the public out there. Yeah. It's just, you have to, it's buried. You have to find it. Um, it's much easier. Well, I'll podcast or, you know, if, if Parks and Wildlife had a podcast or something yeah. once a month, like, Hey, what is the status of wildlife in Colorado? Exactly. Know, morning. That would be awesome. Um, yeah. And I think people would feel a little bit more like, Oh, okay. I, I feel a little bit better informed. Yeah. Well, thank you for offering up that perspective. Uh, I think that's a really, really good perspective to have out there. So. Well, and I love wolves too. It's like, it's, I, I, I had a hard time, you know, filling in the no, I don't, I don't support this on my back yeah. because my whole life is revolved around just thinking they're the coolest things ever. Yeah. Um, but when I really looked at it from a cultural point of view and also a scientific point of view, I thought, eh, you know, ask me in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> wolves aren't here yet. Yeah. I'll circle the yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, having this conversation with me. I hope people found it interesting. I know I had a great time. So great idea, Zach.